0: Good morning. It's deja vu all over again. Some of us were just here and uh, we did have a, it may sound like it shouldn't put those words together, but we did have a wonderful memorial service yesterday because when somebody dies in the arms of the Lord, that is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing to celebrate. And our church ministered yesterday because we had a lot of visitors. And uh, by that crowd, i bet three-quarter of them probably are not in church this morning, unless they got inspired to from what they experienced here. But that's for most of our country, I don't think. I, I doubt a lot of the polls. I think when Americans are uh, polled, as to what's your church affiliation or what do you go to or participate in you know there's like 40% of them respond it used to be 60% you know say that they are a part of a church i think it's like 6 or 7% and i feel like i'm an expert in that area cuz that's what it is in in europe it's even less than that they just don't lie cuz they don't feel guilty about not going anymore we just have a little bit more me- memory so nobody does life and nobody does death like the church, like the people of God. And I don't care how political correct the world gets, especially nobody will will provide hope and joy like the church. We've got that. Nobody has gospel music. Nobody has the music that we have. If you could have heard um, Go Rest High, Judy sang yesterday, and then Mike, you know, Why Why Me, Lord? And then the personal testimonies of seeing God at work in Wayne's life. That it was remarkable. Just, just remarkable. Anyway, our reading this morning is from uh, Exodus chapter uh, 14, verses 1 through 14. Exodus 14, verses 1 through 14. I might read a little bit further than, than that. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi, uh, Hiharoth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite of Baal-Saphon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed him by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. They went on a little road trip out of Egypt. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. We've lost all of our minions and slaves. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. And he took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped by the sea near pi ha Haroth opposite Baal-Sophon. You gotta practice that. I still don't know if I got it right. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. In the NRSV, it says they looked back. They looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Sounds like a really bad vacation. And Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance. The Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Let me keep reading. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Well, where are you going to move when you're up against the sea? Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea to dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army and through the chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. One of the most exciting and intra-quoted sections of the Bible. That means chapter 14 of Exodus is referenced many, many times in other parts of the Bible. as a very, very pivotal story. Because why? Because we're finally getting the Israelites out of 400 years of Slavery and domination, they're being emancipated to fulfill original promise given to Abraham that his descendants would be blessed with land and seed and prosperity. And in the long haul, they would become a witness to the world of what it would be to be one nation under God. It wasn't the United States. It was going to be Israel. So it's a tremendous story, but what we're going to look at today really has to do with, it's related to them, but it has to do with regrets. Anybody here ever have any regrets? You may have regretted that you went, wasted two weeks on some cruise or vacation that you didn't like. You may have regretted that you bought a uh, refrigerator or stove that didn't work out. Or maybe you bought a, a clunker of a car and all you did is keep taking it back. Or maybe you entered a relationship. Maybe went so far as married someone that you regretted down the road. Maybe you regretted a job that you took. Maybe, like God, you regretted that you redeemed these people only to see them backbite, and complain against you. You know, the Bible says that God had regrets himself. We all have regrets. Sometimes those regrets were because we may have initially took a step of faith because we cried out to God, but then somehow we got disoriented on our journey. Now, what does the word regret technically mean? I looked it up in the dictionary. You know, I keep, I keep referring to dictionaries and words because we live in a culture now where people are just trying to change the language all the time. We have to make sure we're communicating the same things. But at the moment, regret means a feeling of sadness or repentance or disappointment over something that has happened or been done. It may be sometimes people refer to regrets as hindsight. If I could go back and change that, if I knew what I know now, I'd go a different direction. Well, wonderful. Everybody has that. And sometimes regrets can add to our wisdom, not to repeat the mistakes of the past, but sometimes it can make us read too much into a future that God is paving for us and we are afraid because we don't have faith. We let our regrets steer us instead of faith. Some of you may have been watching the news, and I know I've heard some complaints, more than one, that Todd, please don't rehash the news with me. I get enough of it all week long. I do, I, I've heard you, and some of that's valid. But some of that is just to try to give a pertinent example as to what I'm talking about. Because my goal is to teach the Bible and let you filter the world through the Bible. That's what we're supposed to do. We are building a worldview. And we're giving God glory on Sunday morning. But in the last couple of weeks, a lot of news has been focused on uh, this six blocks in downtown Seattle. It was originally renamed... ...as the CHAZ or the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone by Antifa and other anarchists. Then they renamed it a few days later as CHOP, Capitol Hill Organized Protest. And it became a no-man's land to any type of uh, police, fire, EMS. Of course, unless people started getting shot and killed as which, what happened... But it was uh, supposed to be a new utopia, a new land, a new country that was independent of the United States. And if you've watched the news, the governor of, uh, of I'm sorry, the, uh, the mayor of that city has been slowly trying to now dismantle it because they figured out over time the utopia wasn't working. They were actually destroying their uh, property tax base. You know, it's hard to get businesses to pay taxes when you can't open. And it's hard to get residents who own condos downtown to want to pay or the owners of those buildings to want to pay when you can't get into them and they're being decimated. Of course, it became obvious that the autonomous zone had a complete disregard for the spread of COVID and basic health standards. And so, it wasn't so exciting after they originally gained their complete freedom to be autonomous. Well, that's what we have in this story. We have some people that dreamed of being free, of the Egyptians. My great-great-great-grandpa was a slave and built the pyramids, and my great-grandpa did it. And my grandpa did it, and I did it, and my son did it, and his sons and his sons' sons are going to do it. But Moses came along and he put that idea in the head that we could govern ourselves, we could restore ourselves to be the people of God. So we went with him after we saw all of these plagues and how we beat down the Pharaoh. And so we left town. We celebrated the new Passover. Dedication of the firstborn, Moses told us, should also be an annual annual rite that we do. And we left town to experience this new freedom. But, you know, with all that excitement of emancipation... Uh, they kind of may have forgot that they also needed to follow through on several other areas because it's tough to be a free-floating, autonomous mob of two million people. I mean, that is a situation ripe to implode on itself, would it not? I mean, that, there's a lot of things can go wrong. You just leave, you just leave a, a nation-state with uh, modern canals and irrigation and the best agricultural program in the world, probably the largest standing army in the world. And they left that. And so at the first sign of trouble, which wasn't too many days after they left, the whole thing looked like it was going to collapse. Why? Because it seems that Pharaoh, as we have read, hardened his heart even more and changed his mind once again. I can't believe, I regret, I let them actually leave. I let that Moses talk me into it after all of those plagues. I can't believe that I let him do that. But I'm going after him with the army. We're going to repatriate uh, those people back as our minion workers, and we're going to put to death their uh, leaders. We're going to stop this right now. And so he assembled the army, and they took off. He took off after the people who were enjoying the new freedom for a few days, but they may have forgotten what it was going to take to really build a free new nation under God. They may have forgotten that this whole program, number one, was to bring glory to God. We are free in Christ not to do what Todd Bodie wants to do with every whim that comes into my mind because I'm forgiven. But I'm free and given this power of choice to glorify the Lord. How about you? What's your freedom given to you for? They forgot that one of the reasons that they were leaving was that they were going to receive the law. They were going to find out what God's will was for many areas of life as they tried to develop a nation. They forgot that they were going to have to go back and establish that fidelity of the Abrahamic covenant, which Moses would expand with the law where if they would obey god they would be blessed by the lord that that freedom involved obedience and blessing but disobedience and there could be suffering and consequences and lastly what they were going to have to learn on this journey was that they were going to have to make room for the holy presence of God in the center of their community. When Adam and Eve saw, uh, fell, guess what left the center of their little community, of their world? It was the holy presence of God. In fact, when the holy presence of God re-entered to talk to them, they hid And they were ashamed. Compared to the justice movements that are going full bore in the Western worlds today, who use these Exodus passages as the foundation of what little theology they're actually built on, they miss all four points of the main thrust of the book of Exodus that I just mentioned. They only concentrate on this utopian freedom, but there's no meat on the bones. And so now, as they're on this pilgrimage, being guided by the Lord and Moses, they must establish these four areas as a pilgrimage through the desert on the way. To the Promised Land. Now turn with me in this passage. Look at this. Think about the the regrets. How quickly uh, they they come up. In verse ten, it says, as uh, Pharaoh approached the Israelites, they they looked up. As I said, the NRSV says that they they looked back, and there were the Egyptians. Instead of the focus being on, on God, they now start focusing in the rear view mirror and looking at the Egyptians. Instead of going to that place of freedom after knowing that God's got their back with all those plagues, I mean, even the death angel passed over them, they start focusing on the approaching Egyptian army. Well, why wouldn't they, humanly speaking? Look what God did to them. He put them in an impossible position. They couldn't win. He took them, and he he took them on a route that basically wedged them with nowhere to go but to be decimated on the edge of the Red Sea. Too deep to cross, old men, women, children, animals, all their belongings... How would they cross the Red Sea? They don't have arms. They don't have swords. They don't have chariots. They're not trained in war. So they cried out. It says that they were terrified, and I would have been terrified too. Would you have? We're about to get slaughtered, or when they take us back, it's going to be worse than before. Does God allow his church to ever get in that position? We're stuck between Pharaoh's army and violence and a sea that we can't cross? How do we react? Are we terrified of what's going on today? Or do we trust that God knows what he's doing and God has put us in this position? And I'm not necessarily talking about just the fate of small churches like ours. I'm talking about you and your Christian witness. Is it going to have to go into complete hiding where even in a job you suppress that and you lie about that and you don't tell people about that because that will have you labeled? It will take away your... Banking privileges. You won't be able to use your credit cards. That's happening in the U.S. now, and it's speeding up. It's looking more and more like what they're doing in China. Well, after all, we built the AI in China that allows them to uh, score people on their social networking and take away their credit cards, their banking privileges, their ability to travel Churches are being stripped of their PayPal. They're being stripped of their visa payment systems now because they're declared to be institutions of hate. Oh, don't tell me this. This is boring. I know this stuff already. It's going to go beyond the institution of the church. It's going to go and narrow down to you personally. It could The Red Sea may not be that far away. And so they cried out. They were terrified. They kept looking back. Oh my gosh, see what's behind us. No, move forward. Moses says, move forward. We can't move forward. There's an ocean. What are you, stupid? How do we move forward? Look at this behind us. It's going to mow us down. And so, in this passage, just in these two verses, between verses 10 and 12, Egypt is mentioned five times by the Israelites. Their focus completely moves from Yahweh to Egypt. Why'd you bring us out here? I mean, did you, is it, we're going to open a cemetery out here? We could have done that back home. I'd rather be a slave where I know i got full meals and a roof over my head than come out here. At least I know what tomorrow's going to be. Walter Brueggemann in his NIB 1994 commentary on this passage writes, Moses had provided a revolutionary alternative for slaves, an alternative to the demands of Egypt. In prospect, such emancipation had been attractive. In hand, however, it is only a profound hardship. It is difficult to sustain a revolution because no one loses all the benefits of the whole old system. Well, before there was any tangible benefits from what is promised, they were going to lose all the benefits of being in Egypt to suddenly going out on faith and having no benefits but God himself. Does that sound familiar to someone who has decided to follow Jesus like we mentioned last week? In Luke 9:62, Jesus replied, "No one puts a hand to the plow and looks back, and who looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God." Paul writes in Philippians 3.13, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have laid hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. How do I overcome regrets? Those, you know, bags under my eyes and those Love handles of the soul, those chronic hindsight waypoints which go beyond actual wisdom and fill me with fear. How do I overcome those regrets? Well, this passage is overwhelmingly about God. Getting the glory. Do you realize that the emancipation story of bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt, it's not even for their sake. In this passage alone, it's mentioned three or four times that this this movement is being done by God for God's glory. Several times in this passage, it mentions again, and we've already been reading it over and over again in early in Exodus, That God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, if you want it that way, great. You're going to really get it that way. And he hardened him, why? To show him his glory. Wanted to show the Israelites his glory. Wanted to show the Egyptians his glory. Remember, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Christians of all people must never forget that the core of our life is not about ourselves. It is to give God the glory. And that even means that we are expendable to the kingdoms of this world to give greater glory to the kingdom of God. And so Moses stands up in verse 13 and he tells the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the Lord's salvation, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Sometimes you can do no more than pray until you have prayed. Now, they did the work of leaving Egypt. They did the work of uh, fulfilling the Passover, the dedication of the firstborn. They physically got on their feet and they left. Faith does require action, but it is combined sometimes with being still and knowing that I don't have the weapons that the world has. They have things that we just can't possibly fight against, except they're coming against God. And we know how it ends. That last last section there in Revelation, you know how it ends. The nations shake their, their fist at God, and they think that they can actually control everything. I mean, this COVID virus, it's becoming apparent that it was weaponized because of experiments being done at a deep, deep genetic level, possibly inserting, uh, what, RNA from HIV into another kind of virus and do it all, you know, plain God. And now it's come back to haunt even the world, maybe. God asked Moses, and he was talking about the children of Israel behind him. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. Can you imagine, Moses? Okay, you're Moses. Okay, Moses, we know you pray to God and he answers you. We saw you kneeling down and praying over there behind that rock. What did he say to you? Move The whole organization forward towards the sea. What? That's your answer? No, some of us are going to turn around and try to go and, and, and get a treaty. Let's make peace. We'll compromise. We'll tell them we'll produce twice as many bricks as we were making before. And we'll do it without straw. We'll do it without straw we'll give them all of our women and our children. Everything i have i'll give it to them. Just if i could just go back and know that things are going to be the same, isn't it? We hate change, don't we? We like things to be the same. The problem with that is, of course, you see that if you ever are have to organize an estate sale for a friend or family member, right? You don't get to take it with you. You don't get to take it with you. I was listening to uh, a very, very close friend of uh, Frank Sinatra, and he was known for all the gifts he would give away. If somebody said, hey, Frank, you know, he signed on, that's a nice set of cufflinks you have on. Maybe they were $5,000. He'd take them off and say, there you go. I mean, his handlers around him would, would have to, you know, somebody say, Frank, that sure is a nice Mercedes you got there. They'd have to say, Frank, you don't give the car away. Now, that, that's too far. Don't You cannot give your car away. But somebody asked him one time, Frank, why are you so quick to give things of so much value away to friends and even strangers? And you know what his answer was? Well, it was more than I can't take it with him. He said, anything that I buy... If I feel like I can't give it away, then it has control of me. And anything that I've accomplished is not going to have control of me. I control it. And that's one of the reasons why I like to give away. And of course, we practice that in our offering every week, right? The money don't control us. And so, we must not necessarily worry about what we will lose, but what we are gaining for the kingdom, the riches of the kingdom, and with that, eternal life. You know, when I get to heaven, I I don't know if we'll have regrets in heaven or not. But I certainly don't want to think I'm going to go in empty handed, not having accumulated or or having given God the glory with parts of my life that were a struggle for me to do. Where I wanted to retain control, but eventually through faith and hardship and through encouragement by you, I was willing to let go and go further than maybe what Todd Bodie wanted to do to give the glory to God. Do you ever feel like that in your life? Man, it is a sacrifice to follow God in today. Of course, there's the other side is all the joy. But if you're looking at it from a worldly point of view, sometimes our things, our priorities, our time... They own us, don't they? There's some people on here because it owns them. It just is. So verse 17, or verse 16, And as for you, lift up your staff. He's talking to Moses. Stretch your hand out over the sea. Divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. Let me just give you a highlight. I'm going to end here. Because next week we're going to talk about. That while they're assembling these people. To get forward. The cloud leading them in the front. The cloud of God. The glory of God. And the angel of God. Move. To the back. The Egyptians see this cloud of darkness. But on the Israelite side, between them and the sea, there's a great light that illuminates them. There's a wall of God between this armed army, all the modern weaponry, and then here's all these simple, deplorable people trapped against the sea. And God's going to hold them off. And I bet it wasn't until they actually started seeing that wind really kick up and Moses with his hands up that they go, the boy's on to something. He did, he, by golly, he did that hail and he did that plague of blood and man, that stinking frogs. But I mean, he may really pull off the big one here. Look at this. Honey, come over here. Look at this. Don't look at the Egyptians. Look over here. In 2 Kings 2:6, it says that Elijah prayed. When the servant of Elijah, when the servant of the man of God, Elijah, got up and went out early one morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded their city. And so he asked Elisha, "Oh, my master, what are we to do?" "Do not be afraid," Elisha answered. "For those who are with us are more than those who are with them." And then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw that the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There's a story, uh, some of you might be World War II buffs that at the end of 1943, going into early 1944, there was a secret meeting in Tehran between FDR Churchill and Joseph Stalin as to how to stop the Nazis and the Japanese threat. And it was also suggested that maybe the Pope ought to be brought in to the discussion And it it was uh, recorded that Stalin dismissively uh, said to one of his advisors, How many divisions does the Pope have? And then later, somebody really sharp commented, Had the advisor possessed greater courage, he might have replied, How many does he need? How many divisions does the Lord's church need? To God be the glory. Amen.